Thank you, Bobby. First uh, Peter, faithful living in the little while. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and then afterwards you realize that they were actually serious? You weren't sure if that's really what they meant, but then you see it actually models out the way that they said. What they said is actually what they meant because it's what they did. In First Peter, in this larger chunk of Scripture we're covering today, we see that what Jesus said is, is actually what he meant for believers and how believers ought to live. What Jesus said in, in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. Jesus meant it. When Jesus tells his disciples, his followers, how they are to respond to hardship and suffering that will come to them because they are abiding in Christ. He meant what he said in Luke chapter 6, but I tell you, Jesus said, you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. Jesus was serious when he said this. And so the church spread out through Turkey that's experiencing slander and certainly verbal accusations because of their allegiance to Christ. Peter reminds them of how they're to respond. They're living in such a way that shows that they are indeed sojourners. They are citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Their king is Jesus, who is above all earthly authorities. And this impacts how they experience what we're going to call this morning a, a winsome sandwich. A winsome sandwich. There's four meat sandwich. Four applications of what it means to live, listen, a winsome life. I don't know if you've ever met a winsome personality, but somebody that you could see love just come through them. It saturated their words and their behavior and their actions. They were winsome, genuine, gentle of spirit, but heartfelt, winsome. The believers are to live in such a way that they're longing to win, not a battle, but they're longing to win the unbeliever's soul for eternity. So in this sandwich, we see six parts this morning. We've got the bread on each side that applies to all believers in all situations. And then in love, he identifies like a great teacher these four different cases of what's it mean to live a winsome life as a citizen under an oppressive government? What's it mean to live as a servant under possibly oppressive masters who functionally are their government? What's it mean to live as a believing spouse married to an unbelieving spouse, particularly the wife to the husband? And what's it mean for a husband to be obedient to the Word and how he cares for his home? And then we have the bread on the final side of that. So church family, are you ready to eat this winsome sandwich? As we pray, God, make us winsome, make us winsome. Give us an eternal perspective. Have us embrace your words that we would actually be able to and dwelt by your Spirit to love those that slander us because of our allegiance to Christ. Help us to have an eternal perspective so marked by the love of God that we would love others that slander us because of Christ's name so much that rather than returning, reviling with reviling, we would pray for them and pray for their blessing as Stephen did on his own cross. Lord, forgive them. They do not know what they do. So, church family, let's take a bite of the first piece of bread. As we note, this very big idea that we don't, we don't want to get lost in the shuffle, and here it is this morning. Jesus loves us, and we belong to him. Believer, Jesus loves you, and you belong to him. 
What's that mean for you? It means that we ought to trust and obey Him today so that unbelievers may be one to Him for eternity. We are secure. Believer, you are secure. And you are loved by God, the sovereign God of the universe. Nothing will befall you that He does not permit ultimately. It doesn't mean those things are good as we talked about last week. But you're secure in His love. And so you can trust and obey Him in every circumstance. So let's look at the first piece of bread right here on this winsome sandwich. What's it mean to live a life as a winsome person, a winsome believer, a Christian? First, verses 11 through 12, we note this question, how will I take up arms against my own sinful desires so that watching unbelievers might be one to Christ? How will I take up arms against the passions of the flesh? All throughout human history, there has always been fragments of a population that have longed to take up arms and bring revolt. Remember this situation that the believers in present-day Turkey find themselves in is one of oppression by the government. It's one in which certainly there would have been zealots calling for taking up arms to overthrow what Rome was doing. And yet Peter tells them, you should be concerned about taking up arms, but not the arms that the unbeliever wants to take up. The arms that we are to take up are against the passions of the flesh. And he says, newsflash for you, you sh we should take up arms, believer. Why? Because the passions of the flesh, they wage war against our souls. We as believers have living hope in the living God, the living stone, the cornerstone. We've been indwelt by the Spirit and built up into a spiritual house. And so as those who have living hope, the old way that marked our lives and the way that ensnares all unbelievers. Remember that way? That was a way of passions of our flesh. It was a way of earthly allegiance. It was a way of doing what was right in our own eyes, and it always leads to death. Yet the way of Christ is a way of life. The grace that our loving God has lavished upon us as believers in Christ, our hope is in heaven and so he makes sure the believers are reminded of who they are. He says, beloved, loved ones, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Think about this. The people he's writing to are still living where they were before. They're still living in the same spots. They're not literally being kicked out of their homes and traveling somewhere else. They're still living where they lived genetically they're the same people they're still not jewish so they're gentiles and gentiles are given us a, a synonym they're unbelievers they're pagan unbelievers they don't have their hope in heaven they're the same people but they've been born again to a living hope they're a holy priesthood living a beautiful sacrifice to god a thanksgiving offering and because of that, even though they live in the same places, they're married to the same people. They're working in the same positions. Many of them are still slaves to the same masters. Even though they still live there, they've now been made aliens, sojourners, exiles, because they've been born from above. Meaning, yes, they still have the emperor. Yes, they still have the local governors. But now they have the king above the emperor the king above the local government, the king above their spouse, the king above their master. 
And so functionally, they begin to look different. And the spouse that's married to them, looking at their life, is forced to see Christ. And so I want you to imagine, if I had this large mirror right here, and I had it at an angle in such a way that if you looked at me as one of my peers, even though I'm still Brent, I'm still the same wonderfully handsome guy, you would look at me, but in reality, my morality, because I'm not enslaved to the passions of the flesh, but I'm waging war against them because I'm under Christ Jesus' lordship. There's a reflection. Even though you're looking over at me, that's the same guy. That's the same guy I was married to. That's the same guy that, that I know, that I work with, or that works for me. You look across to me as a peer, and you're forced to see Christ. The light of Christ reflects into your eyes. And that leads you to do one of two things. Either say, I, I long for that, or to want to stifle the light in me. And it leads them to slander. So even though we know physical persecution will come to this church, it will come to these believers, for now it's slanderous accusations that are taking place. The Christians are having all kinds of accusations being done to them. Even perhaps that they're this murderous group, this lying, slanderous group. And they long to defend themselves and what he tells them is the same counsel that Moses has given in Exodus 14, 14, that God will fight your battles. Let God fight this. You, your job is to return blessing to the slander. And so we have these peer-to-peer -peer relationships in which they're forced to look at Christ. So we look over this way and then you're, you see Christ. And now all the rest of the relationships that we're going to see, these, these four parts of the meat of the sandwich, because a good sandwich has four meats. No cheese, don't waste your time with the lettuce or tomatoes. That is not dietetically approved advice, okay? But every one of these dynamics is one in which a person may feel and be literally oppressed. And the picture is not only from peer to peer that they would see that reflection of Christ in them, their hope of glory, but then you have people that are in charge over them. So as they look down upon them, as the master looks down upon the servant, as the government looks down upon the citizen, as perhaps the husband who's to be in charge in this context and responsible for the wife looks down examining the wife, as they look down at them, they see this reflection of Christ above them because the believer is living in such a way. The servant and the citizen and the spouse and the children are living in such a way that the boss the one in charge, the one accountable, looks down at them and doesn't see a reflection of their leadership and their order, but they, they, they are forced to look above them and say, where are you getting this? Where is this coming from? This is the call of the believer, that this is the charge that we're to have. And, and, and Peter tells them to abstain from this. He charges them as beloved ones, abstain from this, refrain from this. One of the greatest lies that we can ever buy into as a believer is that there is a sin that doesn't hurt someone. Because it always impacts our witness of a watching world. That was no surprise that a pastor lives a bit in a fishbowl, particularly in a smaller community. Or a Bible teacher, a small group teacher, you, you live in a fishbowl. But the picture here in 1 Peter is that every believer is in a fishbowl. Because every believer is in exile. Every believer is a sojourner. Every believer is different than the people around them because they claim an allegiance to Jesus. 
This one that came and lived a sinless life was crucified, and they claim rose again, ascended to heaven, is ruling and is ruling over their lives and how they love and treat others, and he will come again in judgment. And so the peculiar people are watching them. And every one of us has friends and family members and co-workers and bosses that are watching you as one who claims allegiance to Christ and neighbors in every other area. And so what an opportunity that God has given us, not to fear the fishbowl, but to, to realize it's a proclamation opportunity. And this is how God has changed history through believers who live faithful lives through the little wiles of suffering. That's the hope that we have in Christ. And if you don't know Christ, we pray that you would come to know Him. That doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it does mean that when people see us fall, they see us humbly repent and cast ourselves upon the grace that we have in Christ. That's the goodness we have of our God. So let's take up arms in this way as these things play out. Secondly, now, we get into specific cases, specific examples. Verses 13 through 17 of chapter 2 the question is, how will I winsomely submit to the governmental authorities over me so that they and my peers might see the winsomeness of Christ? Believer, remember, your hope is secure. Your hope is in heaven. So nothing that the government can do can threaten that eternal hope that we have. So the question is, how are we to live in a world with partial governments? There's never been an impartial government. Certainly not in the modern world, because there's no impartial people. We're all biased to sin and self-interest and selfishness and idolatry. And so as believers, we don't have a right to look at governments and demand and expect, hey, there should be an impartial, perfect rule. We shouldn't, because they're sinners. But we serve the great king who is the impartial judge, as we saw in chapter 1, I believe, verse 17. So how are we to live to the government authorities that are above us, that God has allowed there and placed there, we're to live winsomely, winsomely obedient lives, winsomely obedient lives, so long as it doesn't cause us to disobey the king's orders who is above even the emperor, even above the president, even above the local governing authorities, so long as those orders don't violate and cause us to disobey God's command and God's word, we're to live and to take, listen, an attitude of winsomeness, not an attitude of moaning. This is convicting for all of us in every place that this has ever been read. Right? It's a challenge to our lordship. We're all kind of, I think, naturally, certainly when we see governments that, that don't act accordingly to the righteous way of God, our, our instinct is to be the moaning kid that doesn't want to wake up in the morning. Ah, we groan, we grumble. We do everything with grumbling and complaining. But the believers, the citizens, are to live in such a winsome way. Not so that they'll simply be treated better, but so that our witness before partial governing authorities will be forced to cause them to Bless God on the day of judgment. It will bring them to shame if they slander us. It may not lead to their stopping of slandering. As a matter of fact, in this letter, it appears as though it enhances their desire to slander because the light gets brighter when the believers live more faithfully to the Christ in whom they have their allegiance, which brings up the opportunity that by God's grace, perhaps they too will come to Christ. Perhaps they too will come to Christ. So I want you to flip over to Acts chapter 5 as an example of this. Acts chapter 5, 
Peter's writing, and we see an example of this. If you're in the Pewback Bible, that's page 913. So we're to live in such a way, praying for the governing authorities over us, that we can truly live in a way that we understand God did not make a mistake. And those governing authorities will give an account to God who judges justly. God did not make a mistake when that politician takes control. You know who I'm talking about here, right? When that politician that you don't want to take into his office, you think, there's no way I'm praying for that person. No way I'm praying for that guy. God must have made a mistake. You know who I'm talking about, don't you? I'm talking about the Emperor Domitian. Of course. Of course. Who do you think I was talking about? The Emperor Domitian, who came into power in 81. So just a couple decades after the church receives this letter, this young Emperor Domitian in his late 20s will lead a charge in a rule of 15 different years in which he will amp up persecution against believers the likes they have never seen before in this area. He will have them jailed for proclaiming Christ crucified and pledging their allegiance to the Lord. He will have them, many of them executed. And yet, Peter doesn't give a footnote to his letter to say, unless you get a governor that's going to come in or an emperor that's going to come in, that's going to make it even worse. No, 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 no. Believers are to live winsome lives no matter what, understanding that the king who's sovereign over them did not and does not make mistakes. They will give an account, but our responsibility is to live winsome lives in this way to fear God and to honor the God who is above them. So look at Acts chapter 5, verse 27 through 42. We'll read through this as a beautiful example. Peter knows exactly what it is, the blessing of living a winsome life. He knows exactly what it is to what we see in chapter 2, verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter and the apostles modeled this. So uh, to, to, to plop us into the context here, the apostles are going, they're preaching Christ crucified, your hope of glory, repent and, and place your faith and trust in Christ. And it leads them to be jailed. So they're jailed, they're tried, the, the authorities see the persuasion that's taking a place, and they're intimidated to want to make this too long, but they go ahead and jail them. And the angel, who's above the authority of the local governing authorities, the angel comes and lets them free. And so what do they do? They go out and they keep preaching Christ, and then they go and arrest them again. And now here we have in Acts chapter 5. Look what happens. Acts chapter 5, verse 27 through 42. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than man. You know, even though they say that, you can see the winsomeness. Note the winsome attitude that they have in this. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as leader and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. Now look at what they do. When they heard this, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. They wanted to kill the apostles. But look what happened, verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, he stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care that... That, that care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, do you remember Judas the Galilean? He rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. 
He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. Now look what they did. They took his advice in verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Remember what happened when the authorities came with Peter? When he was with Jesus, he drew the sword. Now he winsomely takes his beating. And look at his response in verse 41. He drew his sword and then he scattered in fear, denying Christ. Now he winsomely and willingly takes his beating for knowing that he's disobeying the orders of the authorities over him. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. The apostles were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Why did they keep going and winsomely preaching and teaching that, that, that Jesus is the Christ, the King from heaven? Because they saw him risen from the grave. Because it's true. And they were able to winsomely submit to the government authorities that God had placed over them. And God in his grace had given them more life. More days to proclaim the gospel message. Not a freedom from beatings. Not a freedom from slander or hardship from the governing authorities. But rather a shining, proclaiming platform for Christ crucified their hope of glory. So they leave that place and they go back to preaching the gospel because they cannot disobey the king who's over the government. But as far as the government comes, the believers are to winsomely submit so long as it doesn't cause them to disobey the king who is over them. And knowing this, when the believers do disobey the government authorities, they willingly receive the consequences. They didn't enter into some kind of Walker, Texas Ranger bar fight in this temple area. They instead willingly received the beatings, and they counted it for God's glory. That's this otherworldly mindset. That sounds like something out of this world, doesn't it? It's not a kingdom that spreads by taking up the sword. It's a kingdom of winful submission to the king who is above all earthly government. So let's shift this into the workplace. Question becomes, how will I winsomely submit to the workplace authorities over me so that they and my peers might be one to Christ? How will I do these things? So now we see it starts to get even more personal. It goes from government to citizens, and now it goes to personal relationships of the person that's directly in charge of overseeing you. And what we see taking place is three hills as we look through this. All of us have to make a decision. What hill are we willing to die on, literally for the church? Literally for the believer. And for these believers. What hill will I die on? You have to ask yourself, am I willing to die for a political hill? Meaning, I'll, I'll help take up arms. Let's throw a revolt. And if you can die on a hill that an unbeliever can die before you, what glory is that to Christ? What exceptional difference is that to Christ? Will I die on a political hill? Secondly, will I die now on a personal hill? This is what the, citizen, this is what the servant and this is what the spouse has to decide. Will I die on a personal hill? Meaning when these people begin to slander me, will I go ahead and get my pound of flesh? 
and suffer for it? And believers can die on that hill too. And that's all within us. When we're wronged, we want to strike back and get our, not one pound of flesh, but two pounds of flesh. You, it's not an eye for an eye is a picture of justice, but when we get wronged and our eyes get poked, what do we want to take? We want to take two eyes so they learn to never mess with us again, right? That's the passions of the flesh. Or do we want to die on gospel proclamation hills? That's the hill. So God, would you change our hearts and our allegiance in a way to give us a heavenly vision for this? Set this as our hope. So how will I winsomely submit to the workplace authorities over me? How will I do this? Well, for the Lord's sake, he addresses servants to masters. We're going to say quite a bit on this point. But remember, servants, it's argued, could have maintained upwards of a third of the Roman population. Servants in the Roman world, it's different than what we see and perhaps when we think of slavery. And so we're, we're, we're not talking uh, the transatlantic slavery. We're not talking the slavery that stains the Americas and Brazil and these places. These evil actions, these clearly condemned, this dehumanizing of image bearers. And so, of course, we unquestionably rebuke that evil. And we want to see, though, in this text, what was the servanthood? What was the slavery that these people found themselves in? That was a third of the Roman population. How did they find themselves in this way? Well, when Rome expanded her kingdom, if she didn't kill you, she took you as a slave in many cases or kept you out there and taxed you as much as she needed from you. And slavery also made up if you were in debt. You couldn't just say, I declare bankruptcy. Well, you can't just say that. You've got to do a process. But you couldn't just go the bankruptcy route. You were sold into a debtor's prison. You were taken as a slave. And slavery in the first century world was different in the ancient world. Many slaves actually themselves owned slaves that would become indebted to them. Many professions that you think of today with respect and honor were often slaves. Teachers, pedagogues were often slaves. Doctors were often slaves. Civil workers, governments, local governments owned slaves that did all the work that we think of today that that local government employees do. And so it was a different world in how we understand it. But the key commonality, even though some of them were incredibly hard, if you were a slave assigned to the mines, you typically didn't live longer than three years. It was a death sentence. But some slaves, many slaves, were more the most educated of people in the society. So for a whole class of people that's understood to be objects, living tools, the fact that the Lord would see fit to address them as co-heirs in Christ. What a liberating and life-giving and dignity-giving word. Listen to what Thomas Schreiner, uh, excellent scholar from Southern Seminary, says about this. He says, It is crucial to note that the New Testament nowhere commends slavery as a social structure. It nowhere roots it in the created order as if slavery is an institution ordained by God. The contrast with marriage, though, is remarkable at that very point. For God ordained the institution of marriage, but slavery was invented by human beings. The New Testament regulates uh, the institution of slavery as it exists in society, but it does not commend it per se. Hence, Peter's words on slavery should not be interpreted as an endorsement for this system, but rather an act that, of compassion that God gives for an eternal perspective that these people have. Just as citizens are under the governing authorities above them, so too the servants are undering this government authorities above them. The servants didn't really have to worry about the law of 
Rome. They had to rather worry about the one who was given authority over them. The same applications apply. Taking on the mind of Christ in all that they did. And so the servant had to ask himself the question, just as a citizen, is Christ so great? Is his love so worth it? Is my hope so secure that I can choose to live in such a way under his rule to not seek revenge so that out of love, the governing authorities, my peers that are slandering me, the other servants that are slandering me, And my master, who I know when they die, they will experience the impartial judgment of God. They will receive the wrath of God for eternity with the weeping and gnashing of teeth where the smoke of their torment will go up day and night for eternity. Will I live in such a way as submission to the King of Kings that they may be one to Christ. That's a laying down of the life. That's a laying down of our preferences. Did you know that in the first century Roman world, it was a capital offense if you pretended to be a Roman citizen. You could be killed for it. And so when he tells believers, beloved, you are strangers and exiles, It's foolishness and a death wish to try to pretend to live like you're still pagan Gentiles. That's not who you are. And so it is as believers, as these people find themselves with their peers and these natural human instincts to say, that's not who I am. My hope really is secure. The injustice of man cannot take that away. That's the beauty of God. That's the beauty that the Lord has for us. The judge of judges will judge all of them perfectly. Now, it's not a perfect parallel, but when we think of employees, when we think of being employees, what kind of employees are we as believers? Today, what kind of employees are we? Are we employees in which we view our workplaces as drudgery? Do we have a, I guess I have to be here, attitude? How do we speak about our coworkers? Do we slander them? Do we mock them? Are we the cynical ones at work? Or do we view our workplaces as for this season God's given missionary field? To live winsomely for the king that they would see us and they would wonder, what is this hope that you have in you? And they would ask, because our lives are so different. This is the calling of the Christian. Listen, this is the calling of the student. In present context, that the student is to be different than all the rest of the students. The Christian student is to live in a way that they're not simply working to please their teacher, but they're working to please their master in heaven. The servant in this situation is not to work to please their earthly master. The employee is not to work to please their earthly boss. We're working in Colossians, it says, to please Christ above. He's the one whom we are to serve. And this is to make us look totally different. Christians, regardless of what slander comes, that our reputation ought to be in Nacogdoches County and to the ends of the earth. Yeah, you know what? The things that people say about them, they're the most trustworthy person I know. They don't cut corners in their work. They take joy in their work. 
they work as though they're, they're, they're working for a totally different person. They're working as though their inheritance is to come that's more than what I could ever pay them. They're different. That's the call that the believer has when it comes to this context of the ones over them. Fourthly, let's apply now to the marriage situation. The question becomes, how will I winsomely submit, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, how will I winsomely submit to God's establishment of family structure so that my family might be one to Christ? We've seen uh, the application to a man-made structure, that of servanthood on the earth. That's not made of God. That wouldn't exist if sin had not been into the world. But now we see God's ordained work. He says, likewise, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. It's a word play, literally. So your husbands that do not obey the word live in such a way that they may be one without a word. And he gives instruction. And so right there, I want to make a little asterisk on that. We'll see that as we come down to verse 7. It's a reminder to the wives that, listen, though your husband has been placed over you in the context of your home, he is to live under the authority obediently to the Word of God. And he will be held accountable for that. And not only are there eternal consequences, there's present-day consequences. And so he speaks to the wife and how she is to carry herself. He says, live in such a way that when they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external. So meaning, if, we, if, if as wives married to men who do not obey the word of God, that is likely unbelievers, that those wives, they're going to need to make their first priority their respectful and gentle spirits. Why? Because if they don't, they won't. <laughs> so he tells them, don't put your attention, and he gives a cultural application, uh, don't put your attention on the external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or, or, or the clothing you wear. Sarah had joked she was going to come this morning and wear all the jewelry that she owns. <laughs> Even braid some gold into her hair. How can the Scriptures say such a thing? How is this possible? In this culture, in this setting, divorce was rampant. In the culture, the Roman culture, even though only Jewish men, so there might certainly be Jewish believers here in this congregation, in the Jewish culture, only the husbands had permission to exercise divorce. But in the Roman culture, the women and the men, the wife and the husband, had the authority to divorce. And the only consequence that if the husband hit the divorce button in the marriage situation was that he had to pay the dowry that he paid back from to her father. He had, he had to ultimately pay this as, as well. He had to make sure it was all taken care of. But the wife could also divorce. And all that it needed was literally a verbal statement or a written statement by one or both parties. And so divorce was, was prevalent in the ancient world. But it came with a particular consequence for the wife, you see, because the children went to the husband always. So if the wife was to divorce her husband, it was to walk away from her children. Why? Because the, the sons, the children are the ones that build the legacy, that keep things going. So the consequences were great, but even though many of these women who are married to unbelieving spouses, remember as the gospel's coming apart, even though we see in the book of Acts, a lot of households, whole households are coming to faith in Christ. There's many, we can tell here, there's many women, Peter and the Lord's word 
thinks of the least of these. He thinks of the servants that other people would overlook. He addresses them. Now he thinks of the spouse. The believing spouse married to an unbeliever. And as a Roman citizen, she has a right to divorce him. But the question is, even as a Roman citizen, should she divorce him? And this right is where we, of course, loud and clear, put an asterisk here. A very clear asterisk that we want to make sure we understand of a warning against abuse. And so if you're hearing this scripture, or you're reading this word, and you hear the context, and you're in a situation of abuse, right? we want, as a church family, lean into your church family, and you need to, to seek safety, and we want to help do that with you and, and play the role of your church family as you take those steps. Right? Abuse is evil, absolutely evil, and to be rebuked without, without hesitation. So with that asterisk in there, as we remember, what is the situation that a believing spouse is to interact with an unbelieving spouse? When it's a one-to-one vote, she is to be gentle and respectful and submissive. That her spirit is to be one of respect and honor. That God may use this to soften and to change the husband's heart. I want to give you an example of this that's a little less shocking, perhaps. Those of you that have been parents, when your child came home and all of a sudden was on their best behavior for a day, what were you suspicious of? What do they want? What do they want? Now imagine that best behavior, that honorable behavior lasted not a day but a week. You're thinking they're really loading up for something great, aren't they? And the behavior goes on for a month and a year and on into adulthood. As a parent, you begin to look at it and say, this is amazing. Where did they get this? They didn't get this from me. It's like I have to look up to see the authority they're submitting to. They're more honorable than anything I taught them. More disciplined than anything I taught them. They're more gentle and respectful of spirit than anything I even behaved. Their language begins to sound better than mine. They're more courteous and honorable. That's to be the context of the wife to the unbelieving husband. And and likewise, we could flip this, the believing husband to the unbelieving wife. That there is to be a gentle and respectful. He'll give us more details in verse 7. But the marriage is to be made in such a way, and and this this to be one without a word does not mean that she hasn't presented the gospel to her husband. But it means that he's constantly aware because of her winsomeness. Why is she doing this? That he may be one. Because she loves him so much, and her theology is so good that she knows that God is impartial and just and holy, and he will experience the just, holy wrath of God for eternity. And she loves him. And if that means that instead of giving her husband a piece of her mind, if instead of giving the silent treatment, or instead of blowing up, her heart is gentle and honorable. And he ties it here to the matriarchs. And just as we have the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, here we have a, a connection point, a tie-in to these wives, these women that you remember when Sarah is given this promise, what does she do? She begins to laugh when the angels come and tell them of the child she's going to. She begins to laugh, and maybe your spirit 
believing wife. Maybe your spirit hears this and, and begins to laugh like, yeah, right, like that's going to work. But it's not simply about a working, it's about a submission to the king. We can't work in a way to change the heart, but we are the means that God may use, the one who can change the heart. Never underestimate, Peter tells us, never underestimate the power of a faithful, gentle witness, the citizen and the spouse, that God may use it to shape and to change in ways that are unimaginable. That's this new picture that Scripture gives us. That it's better than leading a slave's revolt. It's better than uh, a, a wife living her dream life, whatever that commercial picture looks like on the beach. That the life of a faithful, steadfast, submissive one to the Lord Jesus Christ, that in the picture of the kingdom is greater than anything the world has to offer. And it marks her very life. And so notice of all of these things, where does she put her hope? We can't miss this. Just as Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, where do they put their hope? They put their hope in God. Their hope isn't in their husband. Their hope is in God. So they don't do this because they think their husband is more intellectually or spiritually superior. Not at all. And Paul makes this point as well in Ephesians 5. But because she puts her hope in God. And that God can work in ways that she cannot deduce by mere logic or anticipation. That's the goodness of our God. She puts her hope in God. Isn't that the message for all of us? Lord, would you help me to put my hope in you? Help us to put our hope in God. Now this leads to the context in verse 7 of the husband. How will I as a husband winsomely submit to God's word over cultural expectations and how I care for my wife? that she in a watching world might be one to Christ. And so if you're in a context of a believing marriage, the way, husband, that you serve and love and lay down your life for your bride, the way that you do what Adam didn't do, the way that you care for and watch over and protect and, and, and realize that the evil one, just as he slithered around in the garden or, or crawled around in the garden, I guess, as part of the consequence, uh, impacting Eve, so too he prowls around them like a roaring lion. That we take threats very serious. And how do we take threats serious? By submitting to the Word of God. By submitting to the Word of God. And so if you're a husband who's a believer, and there are many in this scene as well, but on this same area, he says, likewise husbands, not likewise in the way of, now you also submit to your spouse, but likewise in the sense of on the topic even though all the relationships, all the meat so far has been on the one that's in the lesser position, how should they behave? Now he can't help but because this is created by God to also address the husbands. So he says, likewise, kind of like saying, while I'm on the topic of marriage, he says, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. What's it mean to live with your wives in an understanding way? It's the same idea we saw to the servants in chapter 2, verse 19. Be mindful of God. Be mindful of God. Husbands, we need to ask ourselves reflectively right now and in every situation, if there's conflict, if there's decisions that are made, we need to ask ourselves the question, am I mindful of God right now? And if we're in a conflict with our spouse and we're trying to figure something out, we need to ask ourselves reflectively the question, am I mindful of God right now? And he 
He fleshes that out for us. What's that mean? It means showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Since they are what? They're inferior? No, since they are heirs, co-heirs with us of the grace of life. Women and men, husbands and wives are equal in dignity, respect, and value in the kingdom. And how are the husbands to respond? To honor, protect, and to care, and to nurture, and to lay down their lives for their bride. That's how God designed. That's how God designed. That's beautiful. And that type of godly leadership, it is a, not only appealing, but it woos the heart. It's powerful. This is the faithfulness and the model that the Lord has for the groom. This is God's calling for us. And it's one, a, a, a calling that trusts in the Word of God. It's a submission to the Word of God, even though the culture in this time gave the men different authorities to do different things. The men culturally, even though it was a, a monogamous marriage, was the expectation culturally. Listen to this. Culturally, they were given a pass to commit adultery with slaves in many cases. Not only because that was a form of worship at many of the pagan temples, but they were given a pass because slaves, how evil and sad is this, the slaves were seen as possessions. You can't commit adultery with a possession. It's a thing. The husbands, rather, are to live not in submission to the cultural norms for marriage. The husbands are to live in submission to the Word of God above them. And if they don't, what are the consequences? There's two consequences. There's an eternal consequence for the husband, but there is an immediate consequence. Quickly, look at this. Look at the immediate consequence that he has. In the context of their prayer life, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel. Now, you may think, but there's women out there that are stronger. Certainly, there's women that can bench press way more than their husbands out there. But that's not exactly what he's talking about. He's talking about the nature and design and role and purpose that God has given. We are to take charge in protecting and providing and provision and laying down our lives for our bride. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, if we don't honor our wives, there is a consequence of God dishonoring our prayers. It will impact our fellowship with God. And so there's a ton of applications we can give in this point. To those that are dating or desiring marriage, if you're a young man and you do desire marriage, realize that you're going to enter into a relationship that has not only horizontal consequences, but vertical consequences. And if you don't lay down your life for your bride, if you're not honoring your bride, that will cause division in your relationship with God. And if you're a, a young woman or a woman that desires marriage, to realize that and to make sure that he knows that he's counting the cost before he comes into that relationship. Because to be under that authority and to place yourself in a relationship in which the husband cannot lead you, is not leading you spiritually, even if he claims to be a believer, if he, even if he is a believer, but he's not honoring you, he's certainly not going to be active in praying for you and praying for your home to have that prayer support and encouragement. So there's consequences, grooms. There's consequences, not simply eternally impacting, but in the present, with our prayer life and even our desire to pray, certainly. So what's the final piece of the bread? The bread, the four meats, and now we have this general charge. Just as the first charge, bread, was a charge to all to take up arms against the passions of flesh. Here we go. Verses 8 through 12. Everyone suffers in this life, believer and unbeliever alike. It rains on the just and the unjust. But believers have the unique opportunity to suffer like our Lord Jesus so that our God might be honored 
and unbelievers one for eternity. We as believers have been placed sovereignly in different contexts, with different spheres of influence, in different neighborhoods, in different relationships, in different jobs. And we will all suffer. And may our steadfastness to Christ, our allegiance to Christ, shine the Lord's light in those situations. That those that are our peers, those that are uh, below our authority or above our authority, that they would see Christ reflecting in us. And that we would suffer well. When we come to Christ, we're not promised a lack of suffering, but we're promised clarity in our next step of suffering. That is proclaiming Christ and that the Lord may use it to bring many to salvation. That is our hope. This is the peace that we have in Christ. And what does this look like for us? He gives us these five examples. Uh, Grammarians note that this is this kind of leads as a stepping stone. They call it chiasm. It leads in this way. The first and the last one reflect, and then they come here, and then it leads to the very middle emphasis, emphasizing this middle portion. So look at these five descriptions of what it means as a believer to suffer well. It means we have a unity in mind, united in mind, this harmony for the same purpose. Our purpose isn't peace in the world. Our purpose is peace with God. Because without peace with God, we can't have peace in the world. But it's to honor God. Unity of mind. Second, sympathy. That's to be compassionate. It's to have our guts that hurt with other people's guts. It's a sympathy. And what's the very center of these things? Christ-like love is the very center. The love of God has captured us. The grace of God has been lavished on us. And the love of Christ is to flow from us. This is to be the center of the local churches that John's going to speak of next week in great detail. Now, as we come back out of that with sympathy paired with that, we have a tender heart. We're tender hearted. This means that the wives that are hearing this likewise are tender hearted for the servants and the citizens and the people in different situations. There's a mutual tender heartedness and a love of Christ that overshadows these boundaried relationships that the Roman society has made. Christ-like love covering it all. And to end these things, a humility of mind and a humility of words. So how do we respond to these things? In summary, look at verse 9 in chapter 3. But on the contrary, bless, for to this you recall that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. We have your words. Lord, help us to put our hope in you with our words. In verse 11, let him turn away from evil. That's our actions. Lord, let us submit to you, Jesus, with our words and with our actions, and do good, and let him seek peace and pursue it. How do we seek peace and pursue it? We submit to Jesus. We worship Jesus in every circumstance that the Lord leads us to. These are some of the more challenging passages in Scripture. And yet understood in its context, this is the norm of what Jesus told us would happen. In this world, you will have trouble. How do we repay our enemies? We pray for them. We bless them. And we give them Jesus instead of a piece of our mind. We pray, God, help me to take on your mind because I can't do this on my own. And you know what's funny when we say, I can't do this on my own? The watching world knows you can't do it on your own because they know you and they know me. 
And they look at the long, faithful suffering in the little whiles of life, and they look and say, that person is the same genetic person, but they're different. They have a different king. And we give an answer for the hope that we have in Christ. This leads us in this way to our next steps. Four particular components. Number one, repent and believe in Christ for salvation. Repent and believe in Christ. If you don't know Christ, repent, turn, and place your faith and trust in Christ today for salvation. Verbally confess your faith in Him. Baptism is a beautiful picture of this. John's text next week, listen, John's text next week ties this in this way to the picture that we see in baptism, which corresponds to this, which now saves us, not the washing away of dirt with water, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. It's so netted to these examples, these four pieces of meat and the bread on each side. So if you don't know Christ, that's where you begin. You say, God, forgive me, I'm a sinner. I know you're good and holy and just in all your ways. I believe Jesus was sent to live a sinless life. Jesus is God in flesh, and he died on the cross for my sin. I'm surrendering my life to him. Forgive me, God, and lead my life. Give your life to Christ today. I follow Christ in believer's baptism beautiful proclamation of this gift that God has given us. And now we have three specific applications. God has called us, when I said earlier, we're called to be the church. We are to cover each other in prayer. As a member of this body, you, you take responsibility for the people sitting around you and beside you. Not simply to show heavenly hospitality, but to show that through praying faithfully for one another. And so, in the first example, where will I reach out to a parent or grandparent of an adult child this week? to pray for them that they would live a faithful life and continue living a faithful life that their grandkids would come to know Christ, that their children would come to know Christ. So take note this week, reach out to somebody that's a grandparent or a parent that may or may not have believing children and text them or call them and encourage them and pray with them to continue living faithfully for their spirits may be discouraged. Secondly, Where will I reach out to a believer married to an unbeliever? Do you know somebody that's married to an unbeliever? They need your prayer. They need your contact this week, this week of Thanksgiving. Pray for them and thank the Lord for them and pray that the Lord would make them steadfast in this missionary Great Commission endeavor that they uniquely have as a believer married to an unbeliever. And finally, to to what specific child or teen with an unbelieving parents will you reach out to? So many of our students have already gone back home. Many more will go home soon. If you know of a college student, perhaps they're going back into a home this week with unbelieving parents and grandparents. Text them or call them, pray for them, encourage them that they would live as a light in the context of that home, that God would change hearts for he is in the death to life business. Amen? This is our call for our life. Even tonight at 5 o'clock, our students are going to be getting together and they're going to go to the Martin's Barn. They're going to have a Thanksgiving meal. And I would ask you tonight at 5 o'clock, would that come into your mind? Would you just put an alarm in your phone or your calendar just to remember to pray for those students? Even if you don't know them by name, pray that God would comfort them and give them boldness. So many of these students, believe it or not, are already meeting with other students that don't know Christ. Praying for them and meeting with them of the hope they have in Christ. This is God's will that He has for us. Isn't this a good will? The song we're going to sing in just a moment. High King of heaven, my victory won. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, whatever befall. Can you sing those words? Whatever befall, 
heart of my own heart, still be my vision, my ruler of all, O ruler of all. That's God's hope for us. Would you stand with me as we sing and give glory to God? And after the service, as with every service, if you would like to make a decision for Christ or you need prayer this morning, you come down after the service, our congregational prayer. We want to encourage you. Let's sing.